We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Big news of the day, and, and a lot of people were talking about this for an awful long time. Uh, Ontario NDP leader uh, Margaret St- uh, Merritt Style, sorry, has removed uh, rookie legislator Sarah Jama from caucus. Uh, Style says the member from Hamilton Centre, who had been under fire for comments about the Israeli-Hamas conflict, made what Styles calls a number of unilateral actions that have undermined the party's uh, party's collective work and broken the trust of colleagues. To talk more about all of this, Sabrina Nanji with us, founder of Queens Park Observer, and here now, Sabrina. Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Busy day at Queen's Park. Boy, is it ever. Uh, let's start with the removal, then we'll go to the censure, because there's sort of two big stories here. Um, the removal, uh, obviously, it had been called for uh, from opposition for a while, uh, why, or from opposite, uh, opposite parties to the NDP, of course. Uh, why is Merritt Stiles doing this now? Why did this happen today? Yeah, that was the big question uh, for Merritt Stiles. Uh, and, you know, essentially what she said is that it was the final straw today. I mean, since this whole thing exploded two weeks ago, uh, she said she had come to an agreement with her MPP, Sarah Jama, to keep her in caucus. You know, Sarah Jama had apologized for her Palestinian statements. But ever since then, you know, according to Styles, there's just been the series of events where we've really been caught off guard and been forced into damage control to the point where, you know, the NDP and her fellow caucus mates can't, can't really trust. Sarah Jama and, uh, you know, Martel even went as far as to say that now she's putting staff uh, safety in jeopardy because we know that Jama had to close her constituency office after receiving threats. And so this has just been a, a major kerfuffle in the NDP. And, uh, you know, even this morning, my sources in the party say that they weren't aware that Sarah Jama was going to make a statement in the house, uh, and she was kicked out shortly after that. So we have to wonder if that really was, you know, the draw that that broke the back here. Jama essentially doubled down on what she's been saying. Uh, the NDP completely caught off guard with that, and I think, you know, at, at some point she's just too much of a liability for the party, but not an easy decision. Hamilton Center is a long time NDP seat, and now um, they've lost it. So um, uh, there's an inter- interesting line in the in the press release and in, in the news release, and you are seeing it in in reports as well. No surprises, Merritt Styles said. So cl- clearly, there was stuff going on that that Merritt Styles or the le- the leader did not know about, and probably wa- well, many are questioning whether she knew that Mer- that uh, that Jama was going to sue Doug Ford. Like there just seemed to be things happening behind the scenes that the leader didn't know about. Yeah, that was, I think, a major factor at play here, too. Um, you know, Merritt Stiles, when she was questioned today uh, by, by my colleagues, I mean, she didn't say that, you know, that was something that her party had condoned, um, serving mm-hmm. Doug Ford with a cease and desist. I mean, obviously, that is an extreme move. Um, but, you know, the premier's also made some some extreme comments about JAMA as well, like especially outside of the House, as we know, you know, in the chamber, MPPs have privilege and you can pretty much say, I mean, almost anything you want there. Um, But no, certainly you're right. You know, this has been something that completely, you know, has, 
has really weighed on Marit Styles. She's a rookie leader herself, just like Jama. You know, both of them came to power uh, earlier this year with with Marit taking over from Andrea Horvath and, and Sarah Jama as well at the at the MPP level. And so this has really become a question of Marit Styles' leadership and her authority within caucus and whether she can control her MPPs. I think this. Um, you know, regardless of your stance on the Israel-Hamas conflict, I mean, just from a politics perspective, she, Sarah Jama was too much of a liability for the NDP. They've had to do damage control over and over um, over these past two weeks. And I think they just said, you know, enough is enough. Um, you've got to be a team player. And obviously, you know, Sarah Jama wasn't, wasn't playing, playing along. Uh, will this backfire for the NDP in any way? There are some that supported JAMA's thoughts and even some in, in, in the Liberal Party uh, federally. So w- does this, could this backfire? There are there are rumblings of that. I know, um, you know, not not every NDP was there to vote on that motion from the Ford government to censure her uh, and, and even her own. Riding Association, which is, you know, an NDP riding association, came out in support of, of Sarah Jama. So certainly, you know, this is going to be yet another rift in the party, which has been dealing with, uh, you know, its own version of an Israel and Hamas conflict. You know, that, that party has had a longstanding um uh, you know, issues with this. And and Sarah Jama herself, you know, it's not like her positions have been a secret, but I do think that this is, you know, something that's that has caused a, a rift in the Ontario NDP for sure. You know, we, there was buzz about one MPP who said that they they were themselves thinking about leaving caucus over this drama, um, and, and you know they've since changed their minds. But you know now it's it's sort of like what's next? I mean, Sarah Jama won't be recognized in the House. Uh, she's no longer sitting with the New Democrats. I think there's a lot of speculation as to, you know, if you can't really do your job as effectively, do you really want to stick around as MPP anymore? And so there's really a question of, of what happens now because Hamilton Center, the, the people who voted for her, they really don't have a voice in the legislature at this point. And so really, you know, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on, on what happens next. And a lot of uh, a lot of them are emailing us and wondering what their options are because they don't have a voice now. What are their options? What can those in Hamilton Center do? I think certainly, you know, voicing your thoughts to to the MPP um, is is something that's really important here. But you're right, you know, it for folks in Hamilton Center now, they must be feeling like they have no representation at, at Queens Park. And you know, mm-hmm. I've just heard from the speaker's office he's going to follow through on this uh, motion to to censor JAMA and not recognize her. So really the only options for her right now are to apologize to the legislature, take down her original tweet, and, you know, if it's good enough for the speaker, then he'll recognize her. But I I do think that JAMA now is probably, you know, having a a long, hard think about her next steps um, and whether or not, you know, she, she really wants to stick around Queens Park because, like I said, she's completely muzzled. Um, her, she doesn't have, uh, her NDP caucus, you know, with her anymore. And so the question really becomes, you know, if Hamilton Center voted for the new Democrats, I mean, should they not have a new Democrat rep? So I think, you know, by-election watch is certainly on at, at Queens Park right now. Sabrina Nanji with us, founder of the Queens Park Observer on Ontario NDP leader Merritt Stiles removing Sarah Gemma from caucus. Sabrina, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. 
the Swifties have invaded the NFL. So it's like they're everywhere. It's like Swifties, if you want to stay in your own lane, I'm fine with that. But now that lane's getting pretty wide. And it's, 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 it's affecting the Monday night football or Sunday or whatever day of the week. Is it me? Uh, there is a lot of Taylor Swift. And, you know, look at her. I mean, she's a great talent. Listen, I mean, my goodness, how could you not? But at the end of the day, what about overexposure? You know, this has been a thing in the past. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for having me on, Scott. So is this, at what point do you say, you know what, maybe uh, too much? And I, and I mean, I, you know, I spent my early days in hit radio and such, and I remember when Pete Gabriel pulled his sledgehammer video off of MTV, saying he was he was being overexposed. Uh, Phil Collins uh, pulled back Sue Studio because he was getting, he was hurt every single day. Uh, all of these people kind of, you know, no, 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 I want to, I want to reset this. Or they'll even write music for other artists and let them do it. Prince was famous for this. Uh, so at what point does Taylor Swift become too much of Taylor Swift? You know, what's interesting. Um, I think that when you give those two examples, they're two good ones with Peter Gabriel and, um, I forget who you just mentioned, but anyways, you know what? I don't at that that was a different time. And I and I think that Taylor Swift is smart enough to know that she's kind of firing in all pistons right now. So first of all, she's got her concerts, which are going to start up again, okay, in November. Secondly, mm-hmm. she's got a movie out. And uh she is uh selling tickets like crazy for that. And now she is dating a very hot NFL player so that every time you watch a Kansas City Chiefs game, you're wondering if you're gonna get a shot of Taylor in the uh in, in one of the suites. So, so wait a sec, do you mean he's hot because he's good looking, Alyssa, or because he's a hot commodity? I just had to differentiate that. Hot commodity, sure. commodity, Scott, commodity. <laughs> so <laughs> He's also good looking. I'll, I'll admit. Yeah. But, you know, here it is. I mean, I think that, you know, you have these finite times when your star is burning very, very bright and it doesn't continue forever. And Taylor knows it's not going to continue forever. But she also knows she still has another huge lineup of concerts that she is going to be mm. doing here in Canada and also in Europe. So when you think about her exposure, when you think about any good communications or PR plan, Scott, you have its ebbs and flows. There are times when you have your high points and there are other times when you just sort of keep a low lying, constant drumbeat to keep your name out there. And I think that by, you know, this, you know, NFL exposure uh, because of her, um, you know, dating uh, Travis Kelsey is one of those low lying drumbeats. That is just keeping her name out of there. She's not really doing anything proactive about it other than coming up with a secret handshake with Brittany Mahomes. Okay. I saw that. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, she's just being a fan because people are going to be doing that all over the place. And there's probably become mm. a meme already, but you know, it's sort of, this is born out of an organic relationship where two people that are very much in the public eye happen to get together. So, you know, did she orchestrate this? Some people do think that relationships such of this nature are orchestrated. I prefer to think that, no, it's not orchestrated. However, she does know the cameras are on her. She is wearing appropriate colors, red and white. She does come up with a secret handshake with a star quarterback's wife. So I think that she is taking advantage of it. 
but not in a sort of big Taylor Swift machine way. Yeah. That being said, is the NFL doing that? I saw um, uh, on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Frank Gifford was talking about, he goes, I've never had to say, you know, the the, uh, the Taylor Swift factor here. Um, is the NFL exploiting this? Oh, 100%. 100% they're exploiting it. And I think they're also looking at it in a way that, um, you know, that they feel is good for ratings because there is a huge audience out there. There are many, many hundreds of thousands of women who watch football, but there's yeah. also many women who don't watch football. So are they yeah. zooming in during specific Kansas City Chiefs games for uh, a glimpse of Taylor? Of course they are. Is the NFL going to exploit that? Yes. And in fact, if you saw SNL Saturday Night Live, not this weekend, but the past weekend, there was a whole skit about, you know, four sports broadcasters sitting around a table saying, you know, there's, can we actually hear from somebody who watched the game and not just Taylor Swift? And it has become a bit of a, a, a joke unto itself. But still, I think that people like it. And I think that not only have sports announcers cottoned onto it, but also, um, you know, the entertainment shows are now reporting on sports. So if you're, I mean, who's the big winner in all this? Certainly Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, but also by extension, the NFL. Because the NFL is getting exposure on platforms that they would never necessarily ever be on. Yeah. And in because of this, they're being seen by demographics, by different demographics, in a way that would be almost impossible for them to reach in, in, in such one broad stroke. And this is, you know, beautifully adds the human element to to this uh, industry and such. But what happens if they break up? What happens if he dumps her? Okay, that's not happening till after the Super Bowl, Scott. Don't even say it. <laughs> or even the other way around. I mean, everybody's like, it's not Ooh. happening. Neither of them are that dumb. Are you kidding me? But Does people this will have... still tune in to see if the old tr- is Travis looking glum. But you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I that, that's yes. Yeah. He starts. He starts. Good. He starts screwing up. It's too much pressure from the relationship. Get the girl out of there. I can see it happening yeah. now. Can I tell you, this is not happening until after the Super Bowl. <laughs> yes, they may break up in the offseason, but by that time, you know, people have moved on and they're either watching basketball or baseball. So not happening during the season. Uh, have you seen The Golden Bachelor? You know, yes, I have watched parts of it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why have you, Scott? <laughs> Accidentally, and I don't think I'll ever be the same. I don't believe it for one minute, but yes. No, <laughs> no, I was, I was, uh, I don't, I don't really have a question. I'm still just stunned by the whole thing that, you know, here's a man who's uh, older than I am, who's clearly getting more than any of us are. But I, you know, I don't, I just, my wife but was but watching you know it. What? Good. Because do, yeah, exactly. does anybody ever really think about older people uh, being in a romantic relationship? No. Does anybody mm. ever think about older people having sex? You know, my daughter, like, Yep. No, but here we are seeing someone who's older and realizing that things that happen in life, twists and turns, and where you get a second chance and getting a second chance at love. I love the premise of it rather than just the same old, same old. And remember, yeah. the largest demographic right now in mm-hmm. Canada and the United States is over 50. So, All right. you know, it is kind of wily to, to, to jump on this and say, OK, what a great idea. Let's do a Golden Bachelor. But I think that not just people who are older, but also people who are younger are getting a whole new perspective on what it means to be romantic and that it really just doesn't have to be at any age. 
Who would have ever thought we'd have a conversation about the uh, the Golden Bachelor, uh, Taylor Swift, and NFL football all in the same story? There you go, ever. Alyssa Freeman. Never, with this. ever, ever. But there's a first time for everything, Scott. There you, you know go. That's why we're things. that's why we're <laughs> excited. I guess. Hey, what a lightly, what a, what a lightful uh, break as, as as opposed to what we're normally doing. Love it, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, watching the Swifties and NFL. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. The U.S. is working to get their hostages back from Hamas before Israel's offensive on Gaza ramps up. We've been talking or hearing about how uh, Israel was preparing for a ground uh, war and uh, and such, and it has uh, been delayed. To get an update on all of this and reasons being, Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, and here now. Reggie, uh, Reggie, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So we've been talking about this uh, ground offensive for a few days now, and it, it's it's being delayed, we're hearing. Um, what are the main reasons for that? Is this about trying to locate hostages before they do all of this? Well, look, I think we should point out that, that number one, uh, the Israeli military and the Israeli government say that there is no delay to their ground invasion, that the, the strikes that were carried out over the weekend, um, targeting, you know, more than 400 facilities in, in Gaza is, is the beginning of what it intends to do. But at the same time, there is reporting that suggests that the United States is asking Israel to slow down, not only to uh, secure the the safety of hostages, even though we understand that within the last hour or so, two more hostages have been released by Hamas, uh, to to secure the the the, the release of more hostages, but also the United States is looking to um, avoid some kind of broader, more regional war if Israel decides to move, and that's because the United States wants to be able to plan out what it can do. Um, should this become more regional, so we don't have a guarantee of a delay. But the United States does have significant sway when it comes to Israel. So uh, do we know if that's being heard or are, are, are they listening to that? Well, I mean, it's possible. Uh, I spoke with a, with a former Israeli ambassador to the United States during the Bill Clinton uh, administration a couple of hours ago, and he made a point of saying the United States is the senior ally in this friendship and that they are the superpower. Um, and when they when they deliver um you know, uh, a bit of information or when they're talking to the Israeli government, even though sometimes there may be disagreements that the message, quote unquote, is always going to be well received. So there is a possibility here that we may see uh, Israel maybe not bow, but adhere to a possible request. We heard the White House earlier today uh, suggest that there are already military advisors that are on the ground in Israel. Uh, But again, we see the White House pushing back that it is applying pressure to uh, to create some kind of a delay here, arguing um, that that look Israel has the right to defend itself, and they still stand by Israel's planned invasion of Gaza. Uh, do you uh, uh, the two ho- hostages as you mentioned had been released? Um, how many are there at this point? Do we actually know? Well, look, so so we understand from IDF um, that there may be two hundred and twenty two. Uh, the White House was asked earlier today, both at the State Department level and at the, uh, and during the press briefing, um, the condition of hostages, whether they are uh, Israeli nationals or foreign nationals, and uh, and nobody at the administration level, at least in the U.S., uh, would talk about either the condition of hostages or ongoing negotiations that uh, are underway. But the fact that two more have been released, um, you know, it gives 
It gives cautious optimism here. Uh, you know, we still don't know if these are just kind of coordinated PR attempts by Hamas to push back on this kind of Western, um, you know, commentary that they see uh, as being derogatory and negative towards Hamas, despite the fact that it is Hamas that carried out this atrocious attack and this abhorrent attack uh, on Israel. We need to see if there are going to be more. Look, the White House made a point today of saying, stop releasing hostages in small little batches here and there, release them all at once. These are civilian. Mm-hmm who did nothing wrong. So again, Hamas releasing two, we don't know if there's more to come. H- how many more will, will will come after that? And, you know, who who is participating in the negotiations? Because it is the Qatari government that is helping to secure these releases. And what about Canadians in the area? What do we know uh, about their involvement? Any stories there? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't have the the tightest of interactions with what's going on at PMO, but I do know that that Canada is involved in working to secure the safety uh, of its interests and its personnel in the region. That there are travel bans that are being put in place by nations, including Canada, uh, when it comes to to Lebanon and when it comes to uh, to the region um, in general. But but this is this is a global. Uh, situation. This is not a situation isolated to what the United States is doing to try and assist when it comes to hostages or de-escalation. There is a global effort here uh, by all nations to ensure that a stability is is uh, is brought back into the region, uh, and b that civilians are not caught up in. Uh, in this conflict, uh, you know, specifically hearing from the United Nations saying, look, there are rules of war that need to be adhered to. And that includes uh, the mandatory safety of civilians. So whether it's the U.S., whether it's Canada or beyond, each country has a vested interest in ensuring that this conflict does not expand beyond where it is. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Stop the Sprawl Ham Aunt has been a major force in combating the Ontario government's scrap plans for the Greenbelt. Today, we learned that the provincial government will also do away with municipal boundary changes moving forward. To talk more about all of this, Phil Pothin is with us, speaking on behalf of Stop the Sprawl Ham Aunt Council, Ontario Environment uh, Program Manager with Environmental Defence, and with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me. So Greenbelt off the table now, that's done. How does this change the housing discussion? How do we move forward? Uh, obviously, uh, huge demand, little supply. We haven't been building enough for 20 years. How do we move forward with the Greenbelt off the table? Well, let me tell you, it is great news for housing supply. Because as uh, you know, one of your counselors, Councillor Craig Kassar, mentioned, you know, these fourth boundary expansions, uh, you know, to the point of the Greenbelt removals, they weren't really the biggest obstacle facing Hamilton in terms of meeting housing demand. Housing production in Hamilton, just like all over Ontario, is being hindered by limited construction capacity, resources like labor, equipment, and materials. And because a lot of those limits have global causes, it's very difficult for the government to increase the amount of floor space we build quickly. The only way to increase the number of homes that we create at the speed we need to is to focus on compact, low-cost forms of housing in modest sizes like we were building in the 70s in existing neighborhoods so that we aren't wasting half of our construction on building new roads and sewers and schools from scratch. That's what Hamilton wanted to do with its 80% intensification rate. Absurdly, uh, the government tried to stop it from doing that and tried to force Hamilton to double down on the really wasteful use of construction capacity 
that created the housing crisis in the first place. Uh, it's good to see that the government uh, is, is letting Hamilton do the right thing and focus on compact, low-cost, efficient forms of housing. Why hasn't everybody been doing the right thing, Phil, for 20 years? Because the, what you said and the obstacles that you just explained, a lot of that is post-pandemic, uh, the post-pandemic world. The, you know, for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, build has been a bad word. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, for me, what the Greenbelt discussion has been is it has exposed the land, the 20 to 40 years of land that is available before you have to hit the Greenbelt, which has been stalled at just the same rate. So what yeah, have we done? What can we what can we do to and, and really the, the whole Greenbelt thing? You know, people came out and said, well, we don't need to do that. We got all this land. So what the question is, well, why haven't you built houses there? So why have people not built homes there over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And again, you seem to blame the construction industry who's going through a hard time now because of high costs and such. But this has been a 20 year old problem. This is a self-inflicted wound. 20 year old problem. Frankly, it's a yeah, we but are, it is a self-inflicted wound here. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the bottom line here is that we have been trying to develop new housing using a method that doesn't work. It's very different than the method that say, non-English-speaking countries use, which is to build compact housing in existing neighborhoods. Instead, we've had what's called exclusionary zoning that has prohibited people yeah. from building anything other than a new single-family home when an old single-family home is uh, demolished. And so, uh, you know, resources that we are wasting on one big McMansion are laws, are laws. And this is, this is on former councils. This is on former uh, provincial government, right back, you know, since before the Mike Harris government, frankly, uh, on failing to require municipalities to allow denser forms of housing in neighborhoods that are now uh, limited to single detached homes. And the good news is that we're starting to change course on this. We see the city of Toronto really lighting the way here. Mm-hmm. That allow, uh, instead of yeah. all the thousands of McMansions we've been seeing built, Four family-sized homes. I love the term. I love the term McMansion. I love the term McMansion, Phil. It's as deceiving as affordable homes, but I'll let you get away with that. Uh, that being said, you know, Phil, I've talked to Phil. I got to ask some questions here, Phil. I've, I've talked to many, many, many academics in 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 housing people over the last several years about all of this. And at the end of the day, um, infield development is a great solution and a spoke in the wheel but it certainly will not uh it will not uh uh, fulfill all the needs that we need for housing so what do we do beyond you know the zoning changes at council and getting them to cut the red tape and speed things up and do everything that frankly the green belt uh debate has put forward um you know once what how, how do we get that going how do we move forward with that one of the key points that you raised right, was that this is talking to uh, you know experts and officials in the past. Under the old rules, under the old rules, it wasn't possible for uh, development within existing neighborhoods to do the heavy lifting. No, but even have- with the changes, Phil, there's not enough infield land to supply room for all the housing. You can't yeah, just so you fill in the cities. We need more than that. Designated greenfield supply within Hamilton, and we have 350 square kilometers. So the key is to designate those existing land supplies for more efficient and compact 
forms of housing so that mm-hmm. the price point that you're authorized to build at on that greenfield land is one that people can actually afford. The reality is, you know, most people will not be able to afford a single detached home. The zoning has to allow for that land to uh, to be built as, yeah. uh, you know, frankly, the same kind of housing that we see in neighborhoods that were built before World War II. And and it's oddly enough, Phil, because those neighborhoods that were built before World War II, they were used as examples 20 years ago of urban expansion. So I find that interesting. I also find fascinating when people talk about building affordable homes. If you build 10 really, really affordable homes, uh, small, micro, whatever you're talking about, but there's 400 people lining up to buy them, they're not affordable anymore. So how do we speed up supply? we got to build more, build more. Yeah, so the way that we build more, right? Because like there's building more. We can't up the square footage that we build, but we can use divide that square footage. Yeah, into more but homes. but again, Phil, you're you're making this sound as if this is a very targeted solution to a very targeted problem. Whereas, Phil, whether it's a a a a, a you know a 500 square foot home or a 5,000 square foot home, there's no there, there's no great supply. There's a shortage in every single category. Whereas this seems to be just address this this just seems to be addressing one category just one category of many well so let's remember every 5,000 square foot home comes at the expense of 10 500 square foot homes or for a family size unit every 5,000 square foot home is in the current situation coming at the expense unless of course there's more than one family living in them Unless, of course, there's more than one family living in them. Unless there's more than yeah. one family yeah. living in them. Yeah. And, to be, and so we, see, we know the percentage to which that is true because we, 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 we do know the household types and the household mixes in different communities. And so, yes, if there were more than one family living, so joint families like you see in some places in those larger homes, uh, then you would get uh, increased density. But ultimately, the, the key factor to keep an eye on is the planned population density of neighborhoods and the planned number of people per square foot. So we need to be building housing at the sizes that we were building in the 1970s. The average new family home, which at the time was a single detached home in the 1970s, was around 1,050, 1,075 square feet. The average new single detached home in Mississauga in 2022 was something like 3,900 square feet. You know, it is very clear you know, that, that larger home is going to be more expensive. And because we have a shortage of labor and construction equipment that can't easily be fixed, that larger home is coming at the expense of those compact homes that someone might actually be able to afford if they aren't a millionaire. Phil Bott then with us speaking on behalf of Stop the Sprawl, Ham uh, Aunt, and Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defense. Phil, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. What happens at Queen's Park now that Sarah Jama has been removed from the Ontario NDP caucus? Uh, that happening earlier on today and as well censured in the legislature too. Peter Grafe is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and here now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So, Peter, what happens now from a Hamilton Center perspective, the people of Hamilton? Do they have a voice? Uh, uh, where is their voice now? Uh, I guess they have a vote, but not a voice in terms of uh, the decision of uh, the Ontario legislature today. I mean, their member of parliament, a provincial parliament, uh, can still vote, but uh, unless she agrees to uh, remove a post and issue an apology, uh, she's not to uh, have a voice, uh, is not to be recognized by the speaker uh, in the House. So uh, clearly she will still retain a number of other privileges as a member of provincial parliament, uh, but yeah, certainly not uh, speaking in the House. Um, so how does she move forward with this? Um, where does this go from here? Well, uh, I think it really is going to depend a lot on uh, a few things. I mean, one, now that she's no longer a member of the NDP caucus, whether the Ford government really has that uh, big an interest in trying to uh, keep her quiet. On the other hand, whether she's willing to trade off uh, what's been requested of her uh, in order to have uh, that voice within the legislature. I mean, she remains a member of provincial parliament and in various ways can uh, speak for different constituents. Uh, She can, you know, nod in the house, but otherwise contact uh, and ask questions of uh, the cabinet on issues that are important to her. So, uh, you know, the question will be, is she willing to uh, take other steps in order to have the ability to have her voice back within uh, the legislature? As a member with a not, not sitting in a party, obviously her ability to say ask a question during question period becomes very limited as it is. So, you know, the loss of the voice is perhaps less directly relevant to her. You know, it's maybe more concerning to Ontario citizens, uh, you know, to see this decision because it's a, a bit unusual, maybe with the exception of the Rick, uh, not Rick Hillier, of the Randy Hillier uh, censure uh, a year ago. Uh, a fairly unusual uh, reason for using censure in, in our legislatures and one that's maybe a bit dangerous in the long run. How will Hamilton, those in Hamilton Center view this? Um, how should they view this? Are they being heard? Are they are they losing out on full representation? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in a kind of abstract sense, yes, the people of Hamilton Center have lost out of their, their full representation because their member of parliament is not allowed to speak, and it's you know not on the basis of that member having uh, you know gone against the usual standing rules uh, of, of the legislature. The, you know their usual reasons for censure. It's because she held a view uh, that ultimately uh, was deemed unacceptable by the government. So uh, you know in that context, yeah, they have uh, have lost a voice. How's that going to be viewed? I mean, certainly people who are unhappy. With the way Sarah Jama was using her voice, probably don't feel uh, that disappointed in that result. Uh, you know, the people who uh, elected Sarah Jama because of the party she represented have, in a sense, lost that linkage of having a local uh, representative of that party. Uh, people who voted for Sarah Jama because they thought that she was a passionate advocate, uh, you know, certainly have lost their voice uh, in the legislature uh, for you know the various uh, files on which she's been quite. Uh, strongly associated in particular uh, for the rights of people with disabilities. So, um, yeah, you know, there'll be a variety of views based on on how one, you know, saw Sarah Jama and her role about how crucial that loss of voice is. 
Um, uh, many, um, you know, obviously condemning for views that have been said is this, um, and I'm simplifying this, Peter, which I do, um, is this less about Palestinians versus Israelis, Israeli versus Palestinians, and more about democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and terrorism, um, um, does Sarah Jama need to separate her Palestinian views from Hamas? Yeah, I'm not really aware of her, uh, you know, uh, making uh, claims for Hamas. <laughs> All said and done. Uh, well, know, I mean, certainly not. Is, certainly not defending Israel <laughs> with what's happened. And again, you know, we're taking an incident no, that, that has that's, happened. That's correct. We're I taking mean, an incident. A claim for uh, certain national claims. Uh, for Palestine, as well as certain claims for uh, human rights. Uh, you know, I think this is a regular situation where you have, uh, you know, a terrible event, uh, such as, you know, Hamas's, uh, you know, killings, uh, where then suddenly uh, people who are in a minority uh, somehow related to them, you know, because they both uh, kind of claim, have, have claims uh, to the Palestinians to uh, have to speak up and denounce it in a way we usually don't uh, ask, you know, people like us to denounce, say, uh, you know, entry of the game to, uh, say, denounce, say, a Timothy McVeigh or, uh, you know, an act of terrorism by a majority, a member of a majority group. So in that way, I mean, I guess people maybe expect that of Sarah Jama, but I, I could see why she would uh, refuse to say that that's really important, that she should be clear from her, her statements that she's not making a case in celebration of Hamas's actions, but making a case ultimately for what she sees as uh, Palestinian national rights and uh, mm -hmm. the human rights of people in Palestine. I completely understand that, but we wouldn't have got to that point without what happened first. How do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Because right now it's nobody know it seems Israel versus Palestinians and 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 not necessarily democracy versus authoritarianism how how do how do Palestinians convince the world or separate themselves that they're not Hamas they're not part of that well I mean I, again I'm not an expert on Palestinian politics but as a as an outside observer it seems to me that there's uh, you know, quite significant debates uh, within Palestine and also in uh, the sort of Palestinian di diaspora about uh, proper ways forward and, uh, you know, engagement, you know, of which Hamas is one tendency. And it's one tendency which uh, in, uh, you know, a system uh, that's there, whether their capacity, at least in Gaza, to control most of the means of violence, uh, makes it very different, uh, difficult for the expression of, of other views within that. So, I mean, how do they do that? I mean, it's a difficult thing to work out in, in that kind of mm. situation. But, uh, you know, again, I suspect for observers like us who don't have the necessity of, of being in the place, we can uh, yeah. pay attention to the variety of voices that are speaking for Palestine and not necessarily lump all Palestinians in with, uh, you know, one branch, albeit a, a, an important branch uh, in terms of the internal rule of Gaza. Peter Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. 
St. Lawrence Seaway workers have walked off the job early Sunday morning, shutting down the multi-billion dollar shipping corridor between Lake Erie and Montreal that includes the Welland Canal. St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corp. issued a press release just after midnight, set by Unifor, saying two sides were at a impasse. Seaway has 13 Canadian locks, including eight in the Welland Canal. Uh, they'll remain closed until an agreement can be reached. The route saw $16.7 billion worth of cargo passing through it uh, in 2022. We certainly know post-pandemic what the world's been like. Like with the supply chain issues, obviously this isn't going to help. Ofer Baron with us, uh, distinguished professor, operations management, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, in here now. Ofer, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. I'm doing fine. Uh, considering where considering where we were uh, post pandemic, supply chain issues. How does this complicate things? Uh, you know, you take a system that is trying to recuperate from a long uh, time with lots of disruptions and uh, you prevent it from doing it, uh, especially close to home. So that's certainly painful to supply chain uh, for us. Obviously, uh, this is a, a major cog in the wheel. How long before government interacts we're, we're, interacts with this, or will they in any way? Where do you see this going short term? Uh, so short term, I hope there's going to be no need for government interaction. But uh, this is an important enough uh, waterway uh, that a longer delay and uh, keeping it closed for a, a long time will probably require some intervention from our government. And the main yeah, wages, uh, money, is, is that at the heart of all of this? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, with uh, inflation uh, increasing, with uh, pressure on uh, prices uh, employees are looking for some uh, raises, and uh, in this case, apparently, there is no uh, agreement of what is a rational uh, increase in wages for uh, the employees of uh, the waterways. Will this add to the cost of uh, of shipping of of what we're experiencing with the supply chain? Yeah, so we have to remember that this seaway is a non for profit organization, so uh, if uh, cost of labor increases. Their way of uh, of getting it is essentially by increasing uh, prices. So there may be uh, impact on uh, prices. Those are pro- uh, both for import and export. Uh, so there is some some impact on uh, on prices, especially for you know uh, grains and sugar, and you know during the winter time when it's sold to kind of. Uh, clear our uh, roadways, those things that would increase, and uh, we may feel them uh, directly. Uh, you said uh, Seaway not-for-profit. Explain, and how does that change the discussions? So uh, in a for-profit organization, uh, I, if I'm the owner of the organization, uh, the, the, the main stockholder, whatever, I take the profit that was, were generated pocket. Uh, happily, you know, uh, using them for whatever I need outside of the organization. In a, f- in a non-for-profit organization like the Seaway, uh, say that they made $100 in a year, they are not going to take it out and give it as dividends or, or as money to the, the uh, owners. 
but they're going to be using it next year to improve their uh, efficiency. Uh, for example, you know, improving maintenance during winter time or improving their equipment, invest in reducing greenhouse gas emission and so on. Would this mean for a quicker settlement because they are? Should this? Uh, I hope so. You know, it, in those type of labor negotiation, it's always hard to understand uh, what's going on uh, in between the different uh, parties involved. I think both of the parties are aware of the importance of the operation of the canal, as you said, especially given the tight supply chain uh, globally. Uh, so I hope that there's going to be only a short um, um, stoppage of the operation of the canal and they, they will go forward and, and will open the waterway. Uh, and, and obviously this has um, national, international impl- implications well beyond the St. Lawrence Seaway. Yes, first and foremost, uh, the, this is a Canadian kind of issue, but obviously much of the traffic on uh, on the seaways uh, from uh, from the U.S., not just Canadian, and uh, in terms of export, um, much of uh, what what we export is uh, uh, things that are being used to um, uh, like potash that are using that are being used to improve uh, uh, the agricultural kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, industry, so as fertilizers basically. And you know, if there's no no fertilizers coming out, that's uh, that's gonna harm the agriculture, and we can see this in a longer a longer impact. I hope this is not going to be the case. Oh, for Baron with us, distinguished professor of operations management, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, St. Lawrence Seaway Management, uh, issuing a press release that uh, they're on strike and it is an impasse. Oh, for thank you for the time and insight, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Big news of the day. Merritt Stiles, NDP later, has finally removed uh, NDP MPP uh, Sarah Jama, Hamilton Center, from the caucus, although uh, she did say that uh, the Ontario government should not be censuring uh, Sarah Jama, which was kind of interesting. And as well, uh, both of these things sort of uh, all coming to a head on the same day. Let's bring in Bernie Farber, former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress, where he worked on behalf of the Jewish community for 30 years, also a newspaper columnist contributor to various media outlets uh, on the issues of hate, anti-Semitism, and discrimination. Bernie is with us now. Bernie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, as well as can be expected under what are very, very difficult circumstances. It is very odd. What are your thoughts of, of what happened today? Why now, Bernie, do you think? Well, I think it probably took uh, a little bit longer than it should have, but I, I think we have to be clear and just setting aside, you know, uh, Ms. Jama has every right to protest and to take a position uh, that she sees fit under the laws of Canada. <coughs> Excuse me. However, when you join a political party and when you get elected, um, a party runs kind of like uh, an army to, to a certain extent. It has a leader, and the leader is permitted to uh, have expectations and, and to give uh, orders, if you will, and, and, to, and to say this is how we're going to handle this particular issue. Um, Ms. Jama had other ideas. It flew in the face of the party and it flew in the face of, uh, of the leader, Marit Stiles. 
I think Marit was uh, overly uh, accepting of, uh, of Sarah Jama, gave her more than enough chances. But I think it comes a time when a leader is being basically, you know, and the bully used to push you and push you and push you, and, and finally you stood up and said enough. Well, I think this is what has happened now with, with Marit. She has stood up and she has said enough. Um, and and it's, it's sad it had to be this way because there are ways to protest. There are legitimate and credible ways to protest. But once you become an MPP or an MP, uh, you have to toe the party line. It's just the way it is. And she chose, she chose not to do that. Um, does Sarah, and, and excuse me if this is out of context, Bernie, does Sarah Jemma need to separate her views of Palestine from Hamas? Because I think that's what a lot of people have a hard time understanding here. Uh, it, it's less about uh, Israelis versus Palestinians, more about democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and terrorism. Well, it, it certainly isn't about uh, Israelis versus Palestinians or Jews versus Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Palestinians um, are, uh, you know, it's a, it's a horrible history that they have to deal with. Um, they are going to be caught in a, in a backlash that is going to be horrendous. But, you know, we have a situation here where a terrorist organization has control of a very small swath of land. And they're not just a terrorist organization, they are a Nazi terrorist organization. What they, what they carried out, the attack on civilians, on babies, on toddlers, on elderly yeah. women, on Holocaust survivors, murdering 1,400 of them in the most incredibly gruesome manner possible, which I'm not going to even provide a description on, on your show, Scott. Suffice it to say that it was a brutal butchering um, that... Uh, Calling them animals would, would, would not be fair to the animal kingdom. Um, and so in a situation like that, uh, you know, when you want to take sides, and everybody's going to take sides, the, the more mature and those that kind of understand how to do this properly condemns um, the barbarians and condemns the Nazi-like uh, vicious cycle of just abhorrent violence. Um, while at the same time saying, um, you know, uh, Palestinian rights have to be considered and, and, and humanitarian issues have to be considered, that didn't happen with Sarah Jama. So she created kind of this illusion herself, not just to me, but I think to many people, that, well, you know, b- by not even mentioning what happened and what motivated and, and what started this entire conflagration, where is she coming from? What is she all about? And it took her, what, almost a day and a half, two days, to, to, uh, you know, to, to make the, um, uh, to make the uh, you know, the statement, the statement of apology. And um, it was much too little, much too late, because she left her tweet pinned, you know, to her X file, to the, yeah. to the X site. Um, and it was almost like, you know, a red flag in the face of the leader. I mean, what, what, what is the leader to do? And what yeah. are people to think? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what she was what, what she was getting at, because I think there are ways uh, to speak out on behalf of Palestinians, and and, may, and and we all should speak out on behalf of innocent Palestinians. But we can't we can't for a moment forget what happened on mm. Simchat Torah uh, Day. You know that was our, our one of our holy days uh, last uh, last uh, two weeks Saturday. And that seems to be. 
this, this, and that seems to be the problem here, Bernie, is that there's two issues here and they're being blended together. There's the attack on Israel from Hamas that you're talking about, and then there's the ongoing debate, conflict uh, of, of the history of the region and these two peoples. And, and, and it seems that we're trying to meld those. Well, I think certain people are, are, are trying to meld those. And, and when people came to me for advice and said, well, you know, if we wanted to put out a statement, what should we do? And this is, you know, immediately following that, the, the horrendous attack against the Israeli kibbutzim. And I said, uh, unconditionally and unequivocally condemn Hamas. They are a Nazi-like uh, butchering uh, organization. They were a killing unit, uh, mm-hmm. re- reminiscent of the Einsatzgruppen unit, like the Nazis who came in to uh, Eastern Europe and slaughtered Jews by, by the thousands. That's where they took their inspiration. So categorically unequivocally uh, make your statement. Um, and then down the line, if, if you want to speak about uh, either the, uh, you know, what's going on with the Palestinian cause, mm. what you feel is, is a way forward, that's fair game. But you, yeah. can't, uh, you can't go but this or what about this yeah. because there's no buts or there's no, there's no what abouts. These are two separate issues. Make a statement on one, make a statement on the other. But don't try and put them together because this is exactly what's going to happen. Good point. Bertie Farber with us, former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress, working on behalf of the Jewish community for 30 years. Also, newspaper columnist, contributor to various media outlets across the country on the issues of hate, anti-Semitism and discrimination. Bernie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you always. Take care now. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I guess in a sense, um, we're not surprised we're here. The Ontario NDP, uh, Merritt Stiles, the leader, has ousted Hamilton's uh, center MPP, Sarah Jama, out of the NDP caucus, sitting, leaving her as an independent. Also, uh, censure from the Ontario government and really can't do much until she formally apologizes in the House and takes down the controversial post. To talk more about all of this, former mayor city of Hamilton, Larry DeAnne, he is here now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, uh, Scott, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Are you surprised where we are, Larry? Um, At the end of the day, why do you think this is happening now? Well, I'm not surprised that um, uh, Sarah Jama was removed from caucus uh, because, um, as Merritt Stiles, the leader, said herself, um, she lost trust uh, with the caucus uh, by having been asked to take um, the offensive post, what many people consider to be an offensive post down, uh, the leader herself asked her to take it down, and then Sarah Jama did not. So um, the leader either had to capitulate uh, or um, do something uh, punitive, and she chose to uh, punish Sarah for, I guess, disobedience. Uh, so I'm not surprised by that uh, whatsoever. It, it it had to come to that or the brand of the NDP and certainly the brand of the leader would have suffered greatly. And I, so I think that the leader took that stance. Um, it remains to be seen what impact the uh, censure, which I think was unnecessary given that there were intern there, there was internal internal turmoil. Uh, that was going to handle um, Sarah's uh, behavior. 
Um, so I'm not sure whether Ford, uh, the premier, might have risked creating a martyr out of uh, Sarah Jama because of her stand um, and and could easily have sidestepped that controversy by allowing the NDP to do what it did. I think, but you got you got to ask, Larry, would the NDP have done what it had done if it hadn't got to this point? I mean, you, you know, because they had their chance, and she said, "No, she's had a nice chat with her, and that's that, and all has gone on." And it certainly appeared like she was moving uh, Sarah Jama sideways without notifying the leader, even about her 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 lawsuit and such. So, does yeah, it come no, to a point it, where there's the if the behavior's not addressed, then it gets to where it is? Yeah, but but the behavior had to be addressed. Um, and I think that maybe... Well, it is uh, now. Well, I think the Premier's action may have spurred it on, um, but perhaps not. I think that there was a process going on within the caucus that would have looked after it. And uh, and even the caucus, having expelled her, uh, sided with her against the government because they saw it as overreach. I think there's a, a lesson, though, for Sarah Jama. I don't know whether she listens to this program, but the lesson is that uh, politics at the provincial and federal level is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Mm. And she went against the team. She uh, she hurt the brand. She hurt the leader, and um, and she forced the leader's hand. And the most damaging thing that was done was not the censure not even removing her from caucus because she still is an MPP, sits in the, as an independent, but the leader in a written statement called her untrustworthy. Yeah. And that is not something that you want to hang over um, the head of a politician. An election will be coming, and and Sarah's going to have to stand for election, or, or maybe not. But if how come does, how how come Larry the the party cannot have trust in her, but the Ontario legislature is supposed to trust her? I mean, isn't that the same thing? Oh no, I don't think so. I think the Ontario legislature legislature made it very clear, um, and and different different people uh, spoke to this that her tweet, her stand her support um, of the Palestinian uh, cause while not chastising and not criticizing the massacre that Hamas uh, Mm -hmm. uh, invested on, on, on the Israelis um, uh, was, was, you know, just something that could not in the least be supported. I think they made that clear. The, Mm -hmm. the censure, the official censure uh, might, might have, needed to uh, be done as well, except that there was other stuff afoot that was more damaging and and wouldn't have risked making her a martyr. After all, her own party turned their back on Sarah Jama. And, and, and the fact that the party have felt that they had to rally around her against the government gives her a little bit of cover. Uh, and, uh, and maybe the government wouldn't have wanted that. So I, I understand the censure. But the point was made that, that she said stuff that could not be supported. And, and the best deliverer of that message was her own party. Do the people of Hamilton Center have as much voice as they once did? What can the people of Hamilton Center do? They're just sort of so, victims in so all this. They're riding around in the well, back seat. And that's, and, and that's the point, you see, because by, by Ford doing what he did, by the premier doing what he did, a good friend of mine and I have been talking about this this afternoon and texting each other. 
his feeling, and, and this is a, a smart guy who pays attention to, to politics. He's never been a politician, but he listens to politics. He said that, you know, taking the voice away from the representative of the, of the uh, riding uh, was not the smartest thing to do. He said the people in, in Hamilton Center should judge her behavior and not um, a partisan uh, a party uh, and a partisan um, a premier, perhaps. So, so there are two sides to that coin, you see. Uh, the, I don't know. I think that's a bit of a stretch for me, Larry. Uh, but I get where you're coming from. Can she, uh, uh, can she, or should she, or does she need to separate her, her voice for Palestinian issues from Hamas? Uh, because for me, it's not about Israelis versus Palestinians, Palestinians versus Israelis. This is freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism. Does she need to separate uh, her, her her, her issues around Palestinian people with Hamas. Of course. Uh, but what she needs to do is understand that she's a member of provincial parliament hmm. and MPPs have a certain jurisdictional role uh, in government, and which has nothing to do with international politics. She can express her own opinions as an individual, but the moment you express opinions as a member of a party and as a legislator in the provincial parliament, you've overstepped your bounds. So uh, as well as separating the evil that Hamas has done uh, with a Palestinian cause, which could have been done very easily, she could have condemned from the get-go the atrocities that were vested on the Israelis on October the 7th. She could have done that. While at the same time, in a separate uh, venue, she might have restated views that she had stated before around Palestinian causes. That would not have gotten her into trouble. What got her into trouble is the fact that she mixed up her role, didn't understand that she is a part of a team, and she was hurting the NDP brand. And her leader, when her leader gave her an order publicly, and which she thumbed her nose at. And so what happened was inevitable. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, Ontario NDP MPP, Sarah Gemma, out of the NDP caucus, uh, courtesy of Merritt Styles, the leader. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Good. Surprised at where we are with the Sarah Jama situation, MPP for Hamilton Center. Uh, why now, do you think? How, how could anyone be surprised by this? I, I am surprised now because mm. I'm surprised it wasn't a week ago because you're Merritt Stiles. You're the leader of the party and you're one of your members, one of your team members obstinately rejects your directions and refuses to follow your leadership. How, how did she wait a week for this? And I know she said, oh, you know, we, we talked and we thought we had a whatever sorted out. Scott, this, this has done, I think, huge damage to Merritt Stiles looking like a leader. Now you've got people mad because she got rid of Sarah Jamma, if you support Sarah Pajama's position. And you got other people saying she was only able to bring herself to get rid of her when there was literally no other option because she kept rubbing it in her face. Yeah. I just can't believe that this was, I, I can't believe we didn't have this discussion at least a week ago. 
It was interesting. I had Larry DeAnne on a few minutes ago, and he said he agrees with all this, but she shouldn't have been censured by the government. But on the other hand, there was days that this went by with absolutely nothing happening, and it wasn't until all this started to mount up that, you know, including the, you know, the threat of being censured, that this has come to a head. And I mean, you know, it's not much sense having a member of your provincial parliament uh, in a seat if they can't speak up or they can't take part. You know, I, I'm of two minds about the censuring because I am a near absolutist on free speech. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn on that. The, the flip side of this though, Scott is whether it's Sarah Jama or in general or, or a general broader thing, you know, we have in recent years seen innumerable people who were called out, were canceled, were accused of various things, were whatever. And right now, you know, there's video that's circulating of people going to Jewish restaurants and waving flags and abusing I know, them. I know. And we're and, and nothing happens. And nothing happens. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah, it's so not right. so if someone and look, I'm not defending this behavior, all right? But if someone squeals their tires on a pride side uh, crosswalk. They get hate charges leveled against them. Yeah. <laughs> and this you're allowed to do and do something on camera that is targeting a, an identifiable group and nothing is happening. And so, you know, again, while I, while I very much am for free speech, almost to the nth degree, someone I think has to take a stand somewhere or take a position or dig in their heels a bit and say, there is not an endless willingness to let things go on that are putting a, a group at risk. And I, boy, I, you know, I, like I, I, I honestly, Scott, I don't understand what's going on and what the hate laws are or what they aren't or mm-hmm. where they're ap- applicable or not, because boy, it seems like it's a, uh, Today it is hate and tomorrow it isn't hate or yesterday it was. It seems as though there's no continuity to what the rules are. Is it, is it because there's so many people protesting? We don't know Mm. where to start. Yeah. I honestly, I don't know the answer, but if I was, I'm not Jewish. If I was a Jewish people and I was sitting having dinner in a identifiable Jewish restaurant and people are coming up and threatening me and nothing is done, I'm asking that question. Yeah. And there's two issues here that are being melded as one. One is the attack by Hamas on Israel. The other is the historic contents, uh, context of, of how this all started 70 some odd years ago. Those are two separate issues. Uh, does Sarah Gemma need to separate her passion for, uh, Palestinian people from Hamas? Cause that's, that's a big difference. That's it. See, to me, Sarah Jama's problem is not even that she supports Palestinian people. That's, that's, got, that's not it at all. It's the timing of this. You can, if she had two well, months Well, she ago, doesn't denounce Hamas. No, but if two months ago, if she had put out something saying, I am supporting a liberated Palestine, n- that's fine. That nobody, ha- nobody probably blinks an eye at that. When you put out that statement the day after or the day of, I can't remember which one it was, 1300 Jewish people are attacked, raped, murdered, taken hostage. The timing of that doesn't work. You cannot somehow then say the two things are not connected. And if they're not, you need to immediately say, somehow I didn't see the news yesterday and oh man, bad timing on my part. I'm sorry. I, and then what exactly what you just said, I support a liberated Palestine, but in no way 
do I believe that this is the way that it should be happening? None of that stuff happened. The timing of this is where the problem is. The timing stunk and the time and stunk isn't even a hard enough word. The timing was deplorable. And if you, if you're going to make a statement like this, after that many people have been murdered and taken hostage and all these horrendous, horrible things done, you cannot be surprised when people fight back or at least not fight back physically when they are outraged and offended and there is blowback against you and people say, wait a second, you're not exactly not saying something mm. here. It's, mm. you know, it, she, she, she had to know, she had to know this is where this was going to go. If you are a person who is bright enough to become a politician, you have to know that your words are going to have impact and your words are going to reverberate if you get involved in sayings like this at a time, at a time, Scott, like we saw a week ago last Saturday. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.